133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you will give each one of us ears to hear what you're saying to us today. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, allow your written word to become your living word here in this place. God, I pray that I'll say only that which you desire me to say. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you heard, Psalm 133 is a great psalm of unity. Most of us think it was written by King David to be used upon the, the event or the occasion of King David being crowned king of all the people there in the city of Hebron. So you hear that the psalm is elevating, saying how very good, not just good, but very good and pleasant it is when kindred, when brothers and sisters live together in unity. And then the psalmist goes on to give you two examples of the gift of God that unity can be for the body. He first talks about the precious oil that is used to anoint priests and to anoint kings. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down over the collar of his robes. And he also illustrates how precious unity is by saying that it is like the dew of Hermon. If you've ever traveled to Israel, if you've traveled to the north of Israel, you see that north of the Sea of Galilee at the northernmost point in Israel, there is Mount Hermon. It's the highest peak there in the Holy Land. It is so high that most of the year you can look to the top of Mount Hermon and you see that it's snow-covered. But because of that snow, because of the dew that falls heavily upon Mount Hermon, water goes down into the Yor and the Dan River, and they merge and become the Jordan River. And the Jordan River irrigates, brings water to all of the Holy Land. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. So it's a psalm about unity. I would like to talk for just a few moments about that topic of unity. Unity. It's one of those words that our Christian culture and the world around us frequently uses, but we seldom take time to define what unity 
is, what unity looks like, and particularly what unity is in the Bible. Before I talk about what unity is in the Bible, before I talk about what it is David is celebrating here, let me talk about what unity is not. Unity is not a virtue in and of itself. We esteem unity, but it's not the greatest of all virtues. It is a good thing, very good and pleasant thing, but it's not the greatest of all virtues. We have to be careful with the ways that we esteem unity. We know, for instance, in the book of Genesis, they were united, they had unity there at the Tower of Babel. You recall that story from your Bible reading. There at the Tower of Babel, uh, the people there in the city were trying to build them a structure, taking them all the way up to God. And that didn't please God. It was all about them, not about God. So you know the story of the Tower of Babel. God confused their languages. God stopped the building of the Tower of Babel and scattered them abroad. So unity is not always a good thing. You can be united to do something against the purposes of God. Herod, King Herod, and Pontius Pilate were united in their desire to kill Jesus. They came together, very unlikely allies. They came together, and they were united in that purpose of taking care of Jesus and removing him from the public sphere. So unity is not a virtue that we seek at all costs. Unity is a good thing, but there are some things better than unity. We don't pursue unity at all costs, particularly if that unity defies what the Bible speaks of concerning unity. Unity is not feigning or pretending, not feigning unity when there is no unity. We call that artificial unity. Just because people come together and they share a space and they join hands and even if they sing kumbaya, that doesn't mean that there's unity present. Peace nor unity is just the absence of conflict or disagreement. You notice in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus does not say, Blessed are the peacekeepers. I'll confess to you that by nature, more so years ago than now, I, I want to be a peacekeeper. I just want to keep my family at peace and the people around me at peace. I want to keep disagreement and discord at a distance. But we notice Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Sometimes you have to do the hard work to bring unity, real unity, to bring peace, real peace. When I was a district superintendent, I was, in a, in a powerful way, introduced to the world of leadership studies. I'd studied some in the world of leadership studies. I've always been a fan of John Maxwell. I've listened to him since back in the days when, when there were cassette tapes that came monthly. But when I was district superintendent, we would continue to, be, continue to be trained in the areas of leadership. One of the things that we were taught that was rather startling to me is that sometimes a true leader 
will actually mine, mine for conflict. Because again, we're not after peacekeeping, we're after peacemaking, we're not after being stuck where we are, but somehow we want to move forward. And sometimes that means doing the hard work of peacemaking, and that might even mean mining for conflict, seeking out the differences so that the differences can be discussed. Now, some people are such peacekeepers, they'll never mind for conflict. Some people are such peacekeepers, they're so conflict avoidant that they'll never even make their way to, to great or grand decisions. Because anytime you make a decision, particularly a great decision, an important decision or defining decision, there's going to be some discord. I remember in one of my congregations, several congregations ago, I lost one family in the church. Literally, they quit attending, and they were very vocal about why they quit attending, because we changed the carpet in the sanctuary. Sometimes churches are so conflict-avoidant, organizations are so conflict-avoidant, that they will never seek to do something audacious or different or forward-thinking because they don't want to have any degree of discord or dialogue or discussion or debate. But we know that unity is not artificial unity. Sometimes we need to do the work to get on the other side of peacemaking, to make sure that true unity comes. Of course, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean everybody thinks alike or looks alike or acts alike in all areas. Now, you understand Jesus was a good Jew. He was there in first century Judaism. And that's why if you look at first century Judaism, read the Gospels, read Josephus, you come to understand there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Essenes, there were Zealots. There were even some of the Jewish community who collaborated with Rome, their occupiers, and became tax collectors. So the Jewish community around Jesus was a small community in a lot of ways, but a very, very diverse community. You probably know that even throughout the history of Judaism, even to this day, if you've watched movies like Yentl or watched a production of something like Fiddler on the Roof, that the Jewish community has, and they enjoy elevating debate and animated discussion almost to the level of an art form. If you go into a yeshiva where rabbis are being trained, You'll, you'll think that they hate each other the way they appear to be arguing with each other, but all that they're doing is fervently discussing Torah or the Word of God. There's always been great unity, great diversity within the Jewish community and within the Christian community since our beginning. One of the things I love about traveling to the garden tomb there in Jerusalem, that place where people go, to remember the resurrection of Jesus as a beautiful garden tomb. One of my favorite things about going there is there are worship places, worship areas set, set up throughout the garden. And there are groups scattered throughout the garden at the same time simultaneously worshiping Jesus Christ and remembering resurrection. 
So you have all these groups and these various worship places scattered throughout the garden tomb, and they're worshiping, and I love to hear their singing in all of the languages of the globe. Sometimes I recognize the tune. Oftentimes I don't recognize the tune, and I certainly don't recognize the words that they're singing. But it is a beautiful, beautiful depiction of the body of Christ. So we're not after uniformity. We're not after an artificial unity. And we don't think unity is the greatest of all virtues. And lastly, unity is certainly not unanimity. We don't all have to agree on everything. When I do premarital counseling, I always, I always, invite, I always invite the couple to think with me about how to have a good argument, how to have a good debate, how to contend with each other in a respectful, healthy way. I cannot imagine a good marriage that is free of arguing. I think it goes with the territory because it's two human beings trying to live together. Anytime human beings try to live together, um, there's going to be disagreements. We don't seek unanimity in the body of Christ any more than we should seek unanimity in a marriage or unanimity in any community that we're creating. Anytime we have to make decisions, even small decisions, there's going to be a degree of conflict, but we can't out of fear shy away from making decisions. We have to somehow learn how to have those debates, those discussions, those conversations, those dialogues with each other. There's going to be conflict. Remember the Bible. There was Paul, and yes, we know Paul's personality. But when you look in the Bible, Paul had a conflict with Barnabas. Paul had a conflict with John Mark. Paul had a conflict with Peter. I guess you're noticing a pattern here. We also read in the book of Philippians that, that Paul had to address a conflict between Euodia and Syntyche two women there in the church at Philippi. So even before we got out of Jerusalem, even before we left the land that we call Holy Land, we were already dealing with conflict and discord and disagreement. That's the human condition. And we can't be so conflict avoidant that we never deal with the big issues or make the important changes. I know that a lot of churches in Methodism, they don't meet together to deal with big issues except in a certain prescribed, under a certain prescribed list such as building a new building, relocating, merging, and some churches will just fade away rather than making a big decision that may, may ensure their future. If we're going to lead and not just follow, if we're going to lead, we have to not be afraid of of, of conflict. Sometimes we do even mind for conflict to do the hard work of peacemaking, to do the hard work of creating unity. So think about the Bible. Think about Martin Luther. Martin Luther, after a long season of discernment, decided he would stand against the medieval church. He would stand against the medieval church and call the medieval church back to the Bible. Now, my Roman Catholic friends love to remind me that coming out of that, we now have 6,000 denominations. That's part of the DNA 
of Protestants. I like to remind my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, though they may all be under the Vatican, they have Franciscans, they have Dominicans, they have Augustinians, they have Benedictines, they have all these orders scattered throughout the Roman church, and they do it in very different ways. So there's something in our DNA that says we seek unity, but there may be something beyond unity that we seek. So those are some reflection on what, reflections on what unity is not. May I say a few words about what unity is? Because again, the psalmist says how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Unity is a gift in the Christian world. Unity is a gift from Jesus Christ. It's not something we orchestrate. It's not something we produce. It's a gift from Jesus Christ. It's a gift of the Spirit. It comes as a gift because of our relationship with the living Christ. Think about a wheel. The hub, that's Jesus. The spokes coming out of the hub, that's all of us. But it's because of our connection to Jesus Christ, that's where we find our unity, not unanimity, not uniformity, not artificial unity, but that's where we find our unity. We find our unity in Jesus Christ. But you need to say more than that. In this season in United Methodism, and I never ask to be alive during this season, I never ask to be in ministry during this season, we have to believe that all of us are in this season for just such a time as this. I would have chosen an easier season if I could. But during this present season in the United Methodist Church, I hear a lot of people quoting from Jesus' high priestly prayer. You know it, John 17. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed before his betrayal and crucifixion. He prayed it there, I think, in the Garden of Gethsemane. In that prayer, Jesus did pray that you and I, the body, his church, would be one. And that is a good thing to remember because it strengthens our mission. But if you just read the whole prayer, you also begin to see how the oneness is achieved. Not long after he prays that we may all be one, Jesus prayed to the Father as he prayed for you, as he prayed for me. He prayed to his Father saying, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So our unity comes from a relationship with Jesus. Our unity comes from a relationship with the word, both the living word and the written word of God. When we talk about Jesus being at the center of the wheel, we need to understand we know absolutely nothing about Jesus except what we find in the Bible. So we have to receive what we've been given, even to know who Jesus was, what Jesus desired, how Jesus wanted to live. So as we look throughout Christian tradition, we see that unity is based on harmony concerning essential truths. Even our founder, John Wesley, talked about the difference between essentials and opinions. There are opinions that we don't need to be united over. You know, things such as how much water we use at baptism, to what age might we offer the sacrament of baptism. 
All the Christians around the world don't have to agree on that. We don't have to agree on whether or not we sit or stand or kneel when we receive communion. Those are opinions. But the church has also been very clear, especially John Wesley, over our history of talking about what the essentials are. That's where we find our unity coming together around essentials. Now, one of the one of the ways we remind ourselves of those essentials are what we call the creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. And you'll notice that in all of those creeds, a basic conviction is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we spend our lives taking our Christian journey, trying to come to a fuller understanding day by day what it means to say Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, in the Jewish community, it meant he was divine, he was of deity, but it also means he has to rule and reign and be sovereign in our lives. And as we grow under the lordship of Jesus Christ, that means we offer more and more and more of our life to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has to be Lord of our entertainment, Jesus Christ has to be Lord of how we use our resources. Jesus Christ has to be Lord of relationships. Jesus Christ even has to be Lord over something as beautiful as the gift of human sexuality that's been given to the human family. When Jesus, as a good Jew, said sexual immorality or referenced immorality, he didn't need to explain that. He was a first century Jew. The only Bible he had is what we call the Old Testament. So bringing all of our life under the lordship of Jesus means understanding more and more about Jesus, not the Jesus of our own creation, but the Jesus that is presented to us in the Bible, bringing more and more and more of our lives under his lordship. I'm about to wrap up. I I do want to speak for just a few moments as your pastor. I'm suspecting that everyone in the room knows what happens this afternoon at 5.30. So if, uh, if, you're, if you're tight on time and need to slip out, I bless you in doing that. But let me say just a few words, and then we're going to have a time of prayer. And again, if you get strapped with time and need to step away, that's, that's fine. We, we understand. We Christians, particularly Christians in the Methodist mold, We talk about means of grace. You know, means of grace, prayer, the chief means of grace. Hearing the voice of God in Scripture, fasting. We also talk about Christian conferencing as a means of grace. John Wesley, like a lot of our church fathers and mothers, believe that when Christians come together prayerfully to determine an issue, to make a decision, that the Holy Spirit can guide that. It's not like the caucus of a political party or, or a political convention. They come together in prayer. Christian conferencing is a means of grace. We go back to Acts chapter 15, perhaps that can be your homework, where you see the conference in Jerusalem. There in the earliest days of Christianity, they had a conference to take care of some issues. And that's Christian conferencing. We believe that when we conference, the Holy Spirit can show up and give us direction. After about 18 months of lots of conversation, we gather this afternoon 
to um, make a decision concerning our relationship to a denominational structure and concerning our relationship to essential Christian teaching. And we have to make a decision on those things. We will come together and vote this afternoon. We don't do a lot of voting in our tradition, but you'll notice nothing will change unless there's a supermajority that's asking for the change. So as we come together to vote this afternoon, I want to ask you for a few things. And I am speaking to you, as, as I hope you always understand I speak to you, I'm speaking to you as your pastor. I'm not your CEO. I'm not your COO. I'm the shepherd. I've been called, and this is an old word you may not recognize, I've been called to the ministry of curacy. And that's a strange word. Some places, like in England, you'll run across pastors who are called curates. Curate, C-U-R-A-T-E, a curate. Curacy is the care of souls. Those of us in the ordained ministry, we're called first and foremost to the care of souls. We're not, we're not just COOs in a religious organization. Every time I come to this pulpit, I, take, I try to take very, very seriously my call to shepherd I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says in Ezekiel in the book of James. If you don't make it into the eternal kingdom, your soul may be on my hands. It's there. It's in the book. Read the book. I commend the whole book to you. So let me just ask of a few things. I hope this afternoon you'll come in a spirit of prayer. I hope that you'll spend much of this afternoon in prayer, because we want Christian conferencing to happen. I want you to come in a spirit of hospitality to welcome and receive everyone that you'll encounter this afternoon. And I'm sure it'll be said, but let me say it because it bears repeating. I'm sure to be said that after the vote is tallied, before the announcement of the vote, please, as soon as that vote is announced, no signs or sounds of approval or disapproval at that point. I'm sure if this conference, like all other Methodist conferences, we will announce, the vote will be announced, and then you'll move straight into prayer. So no signs or sounds of approval or, dis, or disapproval. I hope that what we see this afternoon is not just democracy at work. It is that. And in recent years, I began to question democracy in America. But the, there's a good side to democracy and a downside to democracy. But what we see this afternoon is not just democracy at work. What we're praying for is that it's Christian conferencing. And let me leave you with this. In my ministry throughout the years, I've tried to pay attention to the Gamaliel test. You may not be familiar with the Gamaliel test. In Acts chapter 5, we find the story of some of those early disciples of Jesus being brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And they bring, they bring them before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the Jewish Sanhedrin, those rulers, are trying to decide to what, to what to do with this new religious movement. And there were some very harsh penalties being suggested. But Gamaliel, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, stood up there and he said to the assembly, he said, 
if it's not of God, this new thing, if it's not of God, it will fail. If it is of God, you don't want to be found standing in opposition to it. And the last thing that Gamaliel said in, in offering this, what I call the Gamaliel test, the last thing that Gamaliel said was, let it go, let it go. Regardless of what comes out of this afternoon, love, love your body, love the majority, the supermajority, or whoever, love them, and allow it to be a time of Christian conferencing. And then let it go and watch what God does with it. I want to uh, call us to a time of prayer. Uh, Old-fashioned Methodist altar is a great place to pray and meet God. I want to change our final hymn to hymn number, hymn number 354. Hymn number 354, if you want to pull that out. And uh, this is a prayer, and I want us to sing this prayerfully as we offer all of our lives back to Jesus Christ. But if you feel so led, um, please feel free to come and kneel and pray for this congregation at our communion rail. Our Stephen ministers will be present, just as they were in the earlier service. They'll, they'll be present, and they, they want to bless you with the anointing of oil and, and offering a benediction, a blessing over you. and and for whatever it is you're praying for today. So I invite you to this time of prayer. Again, if you're on a tight schedule and you need to slip out, we understand.